My sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 6. I'll be reading all 22 verses of that chapter, and I invite you to turn there if you like. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 6. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that's eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this ancient account that has been preserved for your church. Father, whenever we gather together, we do need to enter into your rest. And so we pray this morning once again that we would be able to put away those distractions so that we might digest your word, might take it into our minds and our hearts, and that it might even be expressed in our lives if our wills are indeed inclined to you. And so we pray, Father, that you would encourage us by this word and that you would challenge us once again. Do this for your glory, that Jesus might be magnified by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you know that uh, Brianne and I left Los Angeles, left La La Land a few months ago to come here to Texas, and indeed this has been a, a haven of sorts for us. 
California is often making the news, but usually for the wrong reasons. It's kind of news of the weird each week. It is fairly depressing what's going on there. Um, for instance, I don't know if you heard or saw this story, but there was an epic flash mob robbery that took place recently at uh, Topanga Mall. It was caught on video. Topanga Mall is just a few minutes from where my wife, Brienne, grew up. Anyway, about 30 people raided a Nordstrom department store, and they stole over $300,000 worth of merchandise. And it was really one of those brazen, smashing grabs. And it even turned a little bit violent. One of the security guards that was manning one of the doors was sprayed with bear spray. And these are becoming all too common. Theft in California is getting completely out of control, so much so that I heard, I read this week that the LAPD set up a special task force to tackle those organized flash mob robberies. But on a much more granular level, we're now hearing about ordinary discount stores, right? Locking down toothpaste so it doesn't get lifted from the shelves. And this is a little ridiculous. What is happening? What is happening to our society? I think we sometimes think might feel like we're spiraling toward complete corruption. And even though I mentioned California, we all know that places like Texas are not immune. It's been over a year now since the uh, Uvalde shooting where a teenage gunman entered an elementary school and he killed 19 elementary kids and two teachers, and I think there were 17 others who were injured in that. That is apparently the deadliest school shooting in Texas history. But I think the really um, scary thing for us is that we won't be shocked if it happens again, will we? Nothing shocks us anymore. Because evil is pervasive, it is rampant, and it's not just the shocking actions of people that display wickedness, it's also the, the thoughts of man's heart. We're living in an age where there's confusion over something as foundational, as fundamental as gender, right? I mean, not just sexuality, but gender, where wicked people even promote that kind of confusion. There are plenty of advocates that you can find that are actually seeking the mutilation of children. I mean, we are inventors of evil. And of course, if you stand in their way, if you speak out against that grotesque type of sin, then you're, you're the one labeled the bigot or the phobe of whatever the flavor of the day is. Look, this is not meant to be just shocking opening. It's not meant to be a tirade that you don't need me to stand up here and to regurgitate news from Fox News or Daily Mail or wherever you get your news, right? But there is a shocking element to our text, isn't there? To which I think that we can at least relate. I mean, just six chapters into the Bible and less than 10 generations from Adam, this is God's assessment of society. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's amazing. Or to put it another way, Genesis 12 reads, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We get it, right? Point's been made. Utterly corrupt. Ruined. Shakath in the Hebrew. It's the same word, actually, that's used to describe destroying something. As in, God will destroy the earth in verse 13. He uses that same verb. It's ruined, so I will destroy it. 
It's made its bed. Now it has to lie in it. Genesis 6 is a picture of utter corruption, of total depravity. You know, we ordinarily, when we use that term total depravity, we mean that man is not as bad, uh, bad as he can be. He's as bad off as he can be. But I, I don't know. Because <laughs> Genesis 6 paints a picture that I don't know how much worse it could get. I know this has been a sobering introduction, so let me offer this caveat. Uh, we don't experience as much corruption as Noah's generation. And we won't. I really believe that. We won't. I believe it because we live in the age where Christ is building his church. He's sitting on the throne building his church and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand its advance. In fact, while evil may grow, we don't know if it will grow. It may grow even in this place. Wickedness and the corruption of mankind, it will never be as bad as it was with Noah. And I think that's truly good news. That's God's grace at work in our society. And yet, the world, the flesh, and the devil are corrupting influences from which we need to be saved. Salvation from corruption. That's what I want to talk about this morning. We need to be saved from corruption. Notice, first of all, that God saved Noah from corruption. That's really my very simple first point. I've already pointed out that the text says that the world was completely corrupt, that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. But then how did it get that way? I mean, last week we looked at the origin of sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. So how in just a few generations' time have we gone from the inception of sin to it now corrupting the whole world? How did that happen? Well, let's look together at the beginning of this chapter. It says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, to be honest, these are two of the two most perplexing verses in all of scripture. And there's two fairly popular ways of um, of interpreting what they mean. The first is that the sons of God are angels. Sons of God are angels. So if they're angels, that would mean that angels saw that human women were attractive and they married them and they bred with them. Now, before we dismiss that as just preposterous, we should always be guided by our study and our um, exegesis of scripture. And what this theory really has going for it is that first of all, the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament to refer to angels. For instance, in the book of Job, first chapter, it says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. I know that may be a bit of a strange picture for our ears, but Satan is spoken of as a fallen angel, right? He's spoken of as a fallen star in Latin, Lucifer. That's where that comes from. And we know that from the book of Jude, that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, says Jude. Hmm, that's interesting, right? The angels left their proper dwelling. What does that mean? It says, God is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Likewise, in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter testifies the same thing, namely that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness 
And right there at that juncture, he seamlessly makes mention of Noah. He said, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. Is there a connection there? Seems like there might be. Should we read Genesis 6 as angels saw that the daughters of men were attractive, so they took them? Possibly. You know, one final note to bolster the claim would be the mention of the Nephilim in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore children to them, it says. I mean, if, if you think about it, if angels were to intermarry with mankind, we would expect them to produce something new, giants, men of renown. The term Nephilim, which is a shadowy term, it appears one other place in Scripture where the spies returned from scoping out the promised land, right? What do they say? They say, we saw the Nephilim there. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to them. So I think we have to say that there's some decent exegetical evidence to suggest that the sons of God are fallen angels who married daughters of men. And that in doing so, they completely corrupted mankind. But there is another suggestion. And it's that the sons of God are the line of Seth. And the daughters of men are the line of Cain. And of course, what this theory has going for it is that that's the immediate context for Genesis chapter 6. If you do have your Bible open, flip back to just a couple of chapters to Genesis 4. And there in the middle of the chapter, you'll notice that after killing his brother Abel, Cain's lineage is listed beginning in verse 17. And the genealogy ends with a man named Lamech. Not to be confused with Noah's father, who also goes by the name Lamech. This Lamech's a wicked man. First of all, he's a murderer, just like his father Cain. But on top of his violent overreaction, he says, I, I killed a man for wounding me. He also demonstrates a profane attitude. He says, if, if Cain is avenged, or if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. You see, Lamech is a bloodthirsty and a blasphemous individual. He's saying, basically, bring it on, Lord. I don't care. I'm totally profane. In contrast to that line, in chapter 5, we're given the line of Seth. And in Seth's line, we read about a man named Enoch, of whom it said, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, because God took him. The author of Hebrews elaborates that Enoch was a man who pleased God to the extent that he did not even taste death, right? He walked with God. He was a good man. He was a man of faith, and God just took him. You know, counting, uh, counting Cain's genealogy down from Adam, with Adam being the first generation, Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam. And counting Seth's genealogy down from Adam, with Adam being the first generation, Enoch is the seventh generation. So Enoch and Lamech, I mean, could there be any greater contrast than those two? You have a profane man and a righteous man. And this is the context in which it's presented, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as wives any they chose. In other words, the righteous line of Seth may have intermarried with the perverse line of Cain. And therefore, it was totally corrupted. 
Okay, fine, pastor, we got these two completely incompatible theories on how to read this. Which one is right, right? I cannot say. I mean, I literally cannot say because I don't know. It's almost, in my mind, a 50-50 proposition. Even the most confident scholars would say that they're not absolutely certain on this. I don't know which is the case, but I'll tell you what I derive from this. Corruption comes from without, and it comes from within. It could very well be that fallen angels utterly corrupted mankind because evil does assault us from outside of ourselves. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against President Biden. No, right? Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Cosmic powers and spiritual forces in heavenly places. You know, I I covered for Pastor Jeffrey's ninth and 10th grade uh, systematic theology class. I think it's been a little over a week ago. And it was basically just the students had the opportunity to prepare a, a question ahead of time and it, we played Stump the Chump for an hour, right? Fortunately, they, they submitted their questions ahead of time, so I had time to digest those and, and prepare for them. And, and one of the most profound questions came to me from Daniel 10, Daniel 10, right? Where it says that an angel appeared to Daniel, but told Daniel that he was delayed from bringing his message. He'd been delayed for 21 days because the prince of Persia had held him up until Michael, one of the chief princes, in other words, Michael the archangel, right, came to his aid to free him up. And the student wanted to know, does this stuff still happen? And I wanted to say, I do not involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. (laughs) I mean, we did go to Ephesians 6. Because, yes, there are hidden, there is hidden warfare taking place in the heavenly realms that affects us. But at the end of the day, the truth is, I don't know, right? I have no idea if that exactly is happening. And in a sense, it's probably not happening because there aren't angels delivering new revelation to people. But in any case, the secret things belong to our God. But I would have to say that even though Satan is bound, even though Satan has been cast down, he is truly active. Again, this passage may be saying that fallen angels married human women and thereby completely corrupted mankind. That's a possibility. I can't imagine that happening again because Satan is now restrained, right? Jesus is on the throne and he's building his church. So we won't be completely corrupted as they once were. But that doesn't mean that the devil and his angels aren't still at war with us. The war may be won, but the battle still rages. So evil comes from without, but it's also true that evil and corruption come from within. In another place, Paul writes to the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement is is there with the temple of God and with idols? None. There's no unity, there's no fellowship, there's no accord. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't pair up with unbelievers. Now, there may be a number of ways of applying that, but obviously this has the greatest implication for marriage, right? The most significant of all unions, the most significant yoking that can take place. Genesis 6 may be a picture of what happens when a profane line, Cain's line, intermarries with a righteous line, Seth's line. And what happens is that the righteous line does not convert the unbelieving line. Instead, they're wrecked by it. You know, with all this talk about lines, this line and that line, I think it's probably wise for me to say something about interracial marriages because that's not what this is about, right? This is not prohibiting that. Genesis 6 isn't a picture of keeping a pure line by staying with the same ethnicity. I mean, even when we read on and we see that Abraham does seek a wife for his son Isaac from his own people and Isaac does the same for his son Jacob, that's not evidence that we need to kind of stick with our own people, so to speak. Look, it's not as, as if Israel was even a purebred people anyway. Joseph married an, an Egyptian. He had two sons by an Egyptian gained an, who gained an inheritance with Israel among their tribes. And, and you look this up later. I'm kind of glad we haven't had... Uh, a forum for the last couple of weeks with all this talk of Nephilim and everything, right? But you can look this one up on your own later. Deuteronomy 21 provides provisions for how Jewish men could convert and then marry beautiful female captives. So it wasn't about being purebred. But it's true that consistently in the Old Testament, there are warnings for taking foreign wives. Why? Because those wives will lead Israel into idolatry and apostasy. We saw this with, for instance, with King Solomon, right? He loved many foreign wives and nearly ruined him. He even sacrificed children to Moloch. And Israel jeopardized their opportunity to be reconstituted in the land after the exile. Why? Because they entered into unholy marriages with the surrounding nations. Quickly they did so. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Satan? That's how we need to to see this union. And of course, this isn't about interracial marriages because nearly all of us are Gentiles, right? Salvation's been extended to the nations. God's not saving a nation. He's saving the nations. Besides, almost all of us are mutts as far down the line from Adam or Noah, as the case may be. Nonetheless, Genesis 6, which probably comes about 600 years after Enoch dies, it may be a picture of what happens when the world intermarries with the church. It becomes a corrupting influence on the people of God. Young people, listen to me, and I think you already know this. It matters who you marry. You probably will make no greater decision in your life than who you marry. It's the most preserving or corrupting influence upon you personally, and upon the future of our church collectively. God preserved Noah from a corrupt generation. However, they became corrupt. 
But then how did he preserve him? And what I really mean to ask is how did he save him? And here I want to submit to you that God saved Noah from corruption by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. First, God saved Noah by grace alone. Following all this sad commentary that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually and immediately following God's expression of sorrow and his resolve to blot out mankind from the face of the earth, verse 8 simply reads, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. The word favor here is grace. In Hebrew, it's chen. But in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's charis, right? It's grace. It's unmerited favor. Now, that doesn't mean that Noah wasn't a good man. In fact, verse 9 says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. But grace always precedes the righteousness of faith. Noah didn't deserve to be saved. He didn't deserve to be saved any more than Abraham deserved to be called out of his country to inherit the promises of God. Noah didn't deserve to be saved any more than Jacob deserved to be favored over his brother Esau. Isn't that what Paul says to the Romans when he asserts that those, those two sons, right, even while they were not yet born in the womb, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's promise of election might be established. Not because of works, but by him who calls. God saves that way. God saved Noah by grace, by calling him out of a corrupt generation. And I think we see this even more explicitly in verse 18 where God says, I will establish my covenant with you and with your sons and your wife and your son's wives. I mean, Noah may have been righteous, right? But what about his sons? What about his son's wives? We want to go so far as to say that God saw that they too were righteous and saved them because of their righteousness? No. God is always the one who sovereignly initiates his covenant with those whom he chooses. Again, it doesn't depend on man's effort, but upon God who calls by his sovereign and gracious will and purposes. Noah was saved by grace alone. And Noah was saved through faith alone. Now, the author of Hebrews asserts this, but we don't really need to jump there to see that. We see it, I think, in verse 22. Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. See, Noah's faith was not mere belief. Noah's faith was actions. Noah's faith was obedience. The proof for his faith was that he built the ark. I mean, let's think about that enterprise for just a moment. Noah and presumably his family, they built a three-story ark that was 300 cubits long. That's 450 feet, more or less, long. You know, I, 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 uh, I did a rough measurement of this sanctuary on Friday, and it's 90 feet from that, by, by my stepping it out, it's 90 feet from that wall to the wall behind me here. So 90 feet compared to 450 feet, a football field and a half, right? We need five of these to make an arc. And uh, this is about 45 feet wide. So according to the arc, we need another what, another 30 feet for width? And even if that is 45 feet high at the pinnacle there, 
then you have an idea how big that arc would be if you extend it out that way and that way, right? I don't know if any of you have ever taken a trip out to Kentucky to see that lifetime replica or that, uh, that replica of the ark. I want to take my kids there one day, right? I think the Creation Museum folks made that. Noah had to build that ark with no hand tools. He had to cut the wood by hand. He had to cover it inside and out with tar, with pitch. He'd also have to work on his carpentry skills because he had to make three decks and he'd have to, he'd have to um, design all the rooms for all the different animals. You know, I asked a couple of our guys if they could remodel our sacristy. <laughs> Small job compared to this, right? This is an enormous task. How long do you think it would take? <laughs> Years, a lifetime maybe? How about a hundred years? Seriously, I think there's reason to think it might have taken that long. Notice in verse 3 that God says that because of man's corruption, my spirit will not abide in man forever. His days shall be 120 years. Now certainly one way of reading that is that God is now shortening man's lifespan because of sin. He can't put up with man any longer. We know that man had enjoyed long lifespans before this. Methuselah had lived to 969, but now man won't live to be more than 120. But the only problem with that interpretation is that all of the patriarchs, apart from Joseph, outlived 120 years. Another interpretation is that God is, is bringing the flood in 120 years. Last verse of chapter 5 said Noah was, what, 500 years old when he had his sons. And Genesis 7, verse 6, says that Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came. So there's 100 years, and that comports pretty closely with 120 years that God would be patient. At the very least, it makes sense of Peter's statement that God was indeed patient in the days of Noah. In any case, I would say that Noah's faith, it was evidenced by his obedience, and it was evidenced by his endurance. And that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is not just believing something's true for the moment. Faith is believing a promise and living faithfully for a lifetime in light of those promises. And it's living faithfully even as we endure opposition and scoffing. Peter seems to indicate that Noah endured scoffing. I can't imagine that he wouldn't have, right? Building this kind of a structure. And so people, even today, they say, what? Where's this coming, he promised. Everything goes on as it always has. No, we live by faith. We're saved by grace alone. We live by faith alone. We're saved through faith alone. And we're saved in Christ. We're saved in Christ alone. The ark is Christ. The ark is Christ. Think about it. Everything that went into the ark was preserved and everything outside of the ark perished. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven which is given to men by which we can be saved. Now look, if you think I'm pressing the bounds of what I should see here, or even if you don't, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter 3. Turn to 1 Peter 3 if you have a Bible with you. 
read a few verses from 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. First Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now listen, I know that's a mouthful. I know that in itself is a mindful to digest. But just, just track with me here what Peter is saying concerning the safe passage, this safe passage through water, which took place on an ark. He says, baptism. See that? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. Listen, if baptism corresponds to being saved through the waters of judgment, Pastor Jeffrey, just a few minutes ago, when he baptized those kids, he had all of those different aspects of what baptism is. But baptism is also being saved through the waters of judgment. Does not Christ correspond to the ark then? The one in whom we must dwell if we are to enjoy peace with God as he pours out his wrath on another. Christ is the ark. Christ is the life boat. I imagine some of you might have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to that, right? Because it sounds like, hey, look, the ship's sinking, the Titanic's going down, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and you and me and all eight of us better jump on the lifeboat and escape this sinking ship. Is that the way we should look at the world? It's become so corrupt, let's just jump ship. That's not what I mean to say. Look, this is the 13th week after Pentecost in the church's calendar, right? The year of our Lord, 2023. Next week, we're going to return to a study in the book of Acts under Pastor Jeffrey's preaching. And soon enough, we'll read about the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, enabling Peter and the other apostles to proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus to every nation under heaven that was assembled in Jerusalem for that festival speaking the gospel to them in their various tongues. And we'll read about a mass of people responding, 3,000 people in one day. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter will say, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise is for you and for your children Just as God saved Noah's children, God covenants with our children, right? We saw this with baptism this morning. In just a few minutes, we'll invite the children to come forward for prayer and a blessing. This is a beautiful picture of what God is building here. A new people. But you know, he did go on to say, even in that context, in that wonderful celebration, Peter 
With many other words, he warned them and said to them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We need salvation from corruption. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for that. Father, we confess to you that we need your salvation for we are susceptible to corruption. We know that the world, the flesh, and the devil, they war against our soul. So as Jesus taught us to pray, we pray, deliver us from evil. We do also thank you, Lord, for covenant families that live by your grace and live by faith and abide in the Savior, Jesus. Protect us. Protect us as families. Protect our children, we pray. May their baptism remind them that they have been saved from your judgments, and may they improve on their baptism so that they and we might be preserved and serve as a lifeline to those who are perishing in this corrupt world. Even so, keep them from being corrupted by the world. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. You didn't leave us to perish in our sin, but you become for us an ark unto salvation. And we trust that you are at work making all things new. Your resurrection is the key to reversing the curse and is a hope of a new creation. We long for that day in its fullness to come. So come, Lord Jesus. Hear our prayer, Father, for we pray it in his saving name. Amen.